Well, hello, my beautiful little blueberries. You're very welcome back to another riveting edition of Poncification, the only show where ponces pontificate. How have you all been? No, I'm kidding. You're not going to answer me. How have you been, Chase? I've been good. And I was just thinking, if they're your lovely blueberries, that make me your Veruca salt. It didn't, but yeah, okay. Do you want to be my (laughs) Veruca salt? I don't know. I've always thought she got her way for quite a bit of her life, even if it was short-lived. So as usual, I'm joined by the wonderful Veruca Salt, <laughs> and I am your ever-beloved co-host, Mike TV. Mike TV. Where's that one from? Mike TV was another of the kids in the movie and book, I guess. He's the one oh, who loves television right, and he gets, yeah. yeah. I watched yeah, it on Christmas Day, actually. Every Christmas Day we watch, is it, the book is Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, but the movie is Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Is that right? Do we yes, have that's how I believe it. Yeah, I think you have that right. Um, so every Christmas Day, we watch Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And every Christmas Day, it's just me yelling at my whole family, being like, oh, my God, this man's clearly on fucking acid. Why do we show this to children? This is so inappropriate. I can't believe I was in a play of this. Because the song's catchy. Come with me and you'll, and you'll be, be in a, a great world song. of pure imagination. It's a banger. It's a lovely song. Yeah. It's a classic. I, I always thought the Candyman song was from that, but it's not. And I love that no. song. Oh, the Candyman can, because he mixes it with love and makes the world what taste good. What is that from? I don't know. It was in Malcolm in the Middle, and I don't know what it's from. No, I think it is from that. I think at the very, very beginning, Charlie goes to the shop to buy his candy, and the shopkeeper sings it. Who can take a sunrise? Is that it? Sprinkle really? it with you. Yeah. Is it actually? It's been a long time since I watched I the film. I think though. so. I could be wrong. Okay, so next next week we will print a correction, <laughs> like a good newspaper does. Um, who are we sponsored by? Yes, very important, very important. Let's let's get that money, yo. Mm-hmm. This week, Poncification is brought to you by the Thin Layer of Feminism. Are you an average centrist looking to capitalize on the buying power of the left? You need the Thin Layer of Feminism. Endorsed by Justin Trudeau, Ben Affleck, and Zayn Malik, the Thin Layer of Feminism allows you to get away with sex crimes, racist decision-making, and yes, even poor jokes. The Thin Layer of Feminism, because your conservatism deserves secrecy. <laughs> oh. That, that one's close to home. That one's too true. Mm-hmm. Oof. Mm. Mm. Poncification is also brought to you by Tactical Vomiting. Have you ever been on a night out and hit your alcoholic wall before the last bus home? You need tactical vomiting. Tactical vomiting works by the tried and true method of removing bad alcohol chemicals from your stomach through a sophisticated system of esophageal expulsion, thereby leaving room for all of the good alcohol chemicals you wish to ingest over the course of the evening. Tactical vomiting. Everything's coming up you. (laughs) Disgusting. I think it's a very useful product. They haven't sent me a free kit like the Moldwine Enema people did, but uh, I'm angling for one. I mean, what would that kit even involve? No, they'd send you like a ticket to visit the vomitorium shortly. <laughs> it's just a fake hand with two fingers sticking out. <laughs> Disgusting. <laughs> I've always wondered about that, like, that expression, gag me with a spoon. people use spoons for that where did that come from no it's people who are really really clumsy at eating soup and they swallow (laughs) you mean babies yeah exactly anyway 
Pontification is brought to you by Cognitive Dissonance. Are you a left-wing environmentalist that recycles and composts and still feels the world is going to live forever? You need Cognitive Dissonance. (laughs) Only through CD's patented formula of self-delusion and denial can you be able to live a happy and functioning life, free from worry or care for your children's future lives. Cognitive Dissonance is the only cognitive process endorsed wholeheartedly by the Green Party. Cognitive Dissonance. (laughs) It's really very simply complicated, but not much, I think. One of those times you said dissonance. Did I? Uh, I'll live. I don't remember which one, but it came up. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Any more? Oh, good. And finally, Pontification is brought to you by Parlor. Are you a multi-billion dollar web hosting service looking to house a hate-filled social media platform? Look no further because Parler is here. The good folks at Parler are searching for a new host service to continue their plans to disrupt and threaten the very future of humanity. Parler brings with it a total of 4 million active users that somehow believe they hold a majority in a country of over 330 million. Parler, please help. Please help us. We'll do anything. Just help us. Please. Please! How topical of you, Chase. (laughs) <laughs> it won't Ooh. be when this podcast doesn't go out for two weeks. Are we that far ahead of ourselves? Good for us. How organized. We're doing pretty well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, jolly good. Okay, do you want to tell them what we're talking about? You seem more entitled um, to tell them. I'm taking that as an insult. Well, maybe I feel don't. like this is the... I'm going to issue the disclaimer, actually. I'm going to say this. Um, mm. Not your disclaimer. You've got your own disclaimer. I do. But over the course of this thing, this week we are talking about masculinity, both mm. positive, negative, toxic, jovial, delicious. Masculinity and, uh, in its many, many shapes and forms. In its many, many smells, touch and tastes. And there's going to be moments in this when I get uncomfortable because I am I am a man and I was raised toxic in many ways through all boys mm-hmm. schools and all that sort of stuff. So there's going to be times when I get defensive in this and I'm going to actively try and get through that. And, and be a contributor to the discussion rather than someone going, no, oh, man. Um, and you had something to say about that, I believe. I do. I Okay, so my disclaimer is obviously the opposite because I was raised very, like, femme. And I, I'm not a practicing woman. I still do the high holidays and stuff, but, you know. Hmm. Um, and I... You do the monthly ritual. <laughs> Well done. Chop busted, fellow adult. Oh boy, am I worried. I don't know if I can keep that in. (laughs) Go ahead, please. Anyway, yeah, no, I have some shit to talk about masculinity because much and all as I've spent a lot of my life trying to break into it like a fucking bank robber, I have obviously had a lot of unfortunate experiences with male culture and with men, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I don't want anyone to come along to bad emails at Pontification and go, uh, not all men. And I don't want you, Chase, to go, uh, not all men. And I want to talk a little bit about that expression. Yeah, sure. So not all men, it, it's kind of this catchphrase and it's been knocking around in its current form and usage at least for roughly 10 years now. And it is, in essence, a derailment tactic. Mm. It's used by either anti-feminists or by super ignorant men who don't understand and now their feelings are hurt during conversations about 
about toxic and negative male behaviours and socialisation hmm. and about violence, sexual misconduct and other like just horrible things that appear disproportionately in masculine culture. But hmm. I mean, it, it's true. Not all men are like that. Men are not a monolith of bad behaviour. The thing is, of course, it's fucking true. Everyone knows that it's fucking true. Everyone understands that not all men are the same. Announcing something which is already very well known and very obvious serves only to disrupt important conversations about the behaviour, which again, actually is disproportionately perpetrated by men. And you can be like, I'm an ignorant man. I'm the guy from the first paragraph. My feelings are hurt. And I'm sorry that your feelings are hurt. But I'm not going to place the same significance on that as I will on epidemic levels of violence. Agreed. And I think yeah. um, a, a good way of putting it always is, is the BLM protests face the same thing, is that if you think yep. when they're talking about white people, mm-hmm. or when people are talking about white people being violent or whether they're being evil, and your response is not all white people, well, you should know they're not talking about you if you don't yeah. do that. And in the same way, but when they're talking about men and you don't do that stuff, they're not talking about you. Yeah, just you know, give yourself a thing. pat on the back. Thanks very much yeah. for not being the guy we're talking about. But well, I'd, also, I'd rather maybe you were patting yourself. I didn't rape anybody today. <laughs> That's not a great reason also, to pat maybe, yourself yeah, on the back. Go, go a little bit further. Fish out the dude in your friend group who we are talking about and have words with yeah. him because, unfortunately. Toxic men listen to other men. They don't listen to women. They don't listen to non-binary people. They don't listen to trans people, including trans men. They don't. You, the cis men, you need to pull up your friends on their shit. Agreed. Um, It was actually a real uh, glass-shattering moment for me when I noticed the fact that I had male friends I was talking to in a smoking area of a pub. And when, when a nearby woman would contribute something to the conversation... The other men would look to me as if to approve what they'd said, and I'd never noticed that. I just I noticed it one time, and I was like, "Uh, "No, they're saying things," and and it's it's the oddest thing. Same Mm -hmm. with like waiters and stuff as well, coming up and and talking to you first as if you're going to order for the table. Like, fuck off. I don't know. (laughs) I was actually again. I was in a smoking room one time, and I heard I overheard a conversation between some people I didn't know, where some guy asked the man at the table was like oh you got a new car or whatever and he's talking about this and the man is about to answer and presumably his wife I think his wife snapped her fingers and was like hey don't look at him look at me you were you're talking to me it's my car I got a new car look at me Mm -hmm. I'm talking And like the whole smoking room fell quiet. Everyone looked. And I think a lot of people were like, look at that uppity, like C word. Can we say cunt on a podcast? Yeah, you say whatever you want. Although I've been told that bitch is now a derogatory term. Everything's a derogatory term. Including cunt. Uh, Definitely. Unless you're Australian. My mom always said you shouldn't say it unless you have one. (laughs) I quite like that. Go mama Yeah. yeah, yeah, pretty good. It's quite good. <laughs> we're 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 talking about stuff. Let's actually get to some of our notes because otherwise we'll just uh, end up. Yeah, we could talk about this for days. Um, I've got let's. the softball stuff, as you'd expect. <laughs> 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 so uh, what I did was I kind of dug up a lot of um, historical stuff now that would be considered femme coded that was originally masculine, just to say like how masculinity oh, has evolved under under sort of. Um, 
religious and um, aristocratic uh, sort of societies, how they changed. Mm. So high heels were originally for men. Um, mm. Most people think we get them from Persian soldiers. They wore heels to grip their stirrups when riding. And women only began wearing high heels because they wanted to look masculine. Um, it soon became a sign of wealth and status. And this is maybe where the phrase well-heeled comes from. Um, Louis the Fourteenth was actually proud of his four-inch high heels. That's actually a really interesting one, because now obviously we're seeing the opposite. Uh, yeah, kind of. Well, I, uh, except for Billy Joe Armstrong and his lifts, I suppose. Um, Sorry, what about Billy Joe Armstrong? Oh, he's incredibly short. He wears like big platform shoes on stage. Does he? I never knew He does, that. yeah. He's like 5'3 or something. He's a very short guy. Oh, bless. Is yeah. it wrong that I find uh, that a bit attractive? Um, My husband's 6'1", no, so I'm kind of like, oh, I haven't shifted a tiny yeah. person in ages. It's been a long time. <laughs> it's been ages. <laughs> uh, number two, which I thought was interesting, was that in ancient Greek, a large penis was associated with foolishness and ugliness. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty cool. Oh, I mean, I still kind of feel that way. The problem with a large penis yeah, is I I assume that you don't spend a lot of time having sex with men, given that you're a straight dude. Um, but no. when you have sex no. with a man and he has a large penis, I'm not talking about you, you listener with a large penis, but usually they're quite lazy. Oh, they just think it does all the work like, for them. Oh, you know, yeah. yeah. They're like, oh yeah, my dick's so big, I don't have to do anything. Just, you know, yeah, you're allowed to ride this glorious mancock. I think we've had that evolution over the last like 40, or 40 35 years maybe, is mm. that like sex has now become like this active skill rather than an active, you know, you have it or you don't kind of thing. It's become like a sort of like being a good dancer or something. You have to learn the techniques, that kind of thing. I definitely think sex is something that you practice. Yeah, well, I would 100%. believe that. Yeah, for sure. Oh, God, do you remember the first time? Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> so in ancient Greek, in ancient Greece, the small penis was the height of desirability. No pun intended. Um, they thought it showed level headed logical thinking. Um, but you try telling that to anyone today. I just, I think it doesn't really, it's yeah. not received well. We're not going to be able to like reclaim that, are we? No, I wouldn't have said that. Uh, mm. Let me see here. So, so um, boys not crying mm. is actually a relatively recent thing. Really? Um, only in the last 125 years or so. Abraham Lincoln used to cry during his public speeches quite a lot. Because he just loved his country so damn much or... No, because he was passionate. He felt what he was saying, really, seems to be what people thought. I kind of respect um, that, though. Like, if we had a Taoiseach yeah, who do. just, like, felt so strongly about what he was saying, he burst into tears, I'd be like, fuck yeah, I'll vote for that dude. Unless he's a blue Yeah, it also mentions a, a fate. Well, it also mentions Odysseus, who cried throughout the Iliad, which is very true. That's like an ancient Greek hero. You may have read about yeah. him. Um, Oliver Cromwell openly cried in public. And to be honest, he deserved a hell of a lot worse than that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it only really changed in around 17th, 18th century Europe. Society became influenced by stoicism that meant aristocratic men were expected to manage their emotions. Mm -hmm. uh, crying was thought to be a lack of emotional regulation. And that's where this idea of crying shame comes from, um, which is interesting because most people think that men are actually far more sensitive than women generally. I definitely think that. that I would 100% agree. Yep. This feels like a good time to bring up uh, my fact of the week. I've told this <laughs> yeah. to you already and now I want to tell it to the folks at home. So I recently sure. learned, you know, so you know women 
and how during, I've heard of them. during their periods they get like super irrational and like over the top and unmanageable. And that's a widely oh, yeah. accepted truth, I think. We can say it's because that. Because they grow testicles for three days. Honest to God, the thing when women are like so hormonal they can't stop crying and picking fights with you, it's actually because of an increase of testosterone, the hormone that mm. makes people irrational. So yeah. Next time you want to accuse a woman of like being crazy during her period, remember, she's just being manly. Yeah. Um another one, boys used to wear pink. I knew that actually. Yeah, uh, it's around 80 years ago, pink was a man's colour. It was considered masculine as it was more uh, decided and strong colour. And it was only associated with girls in the 1940s. Um, so we've actually had electric shavers longer than we've had the belief that pink is for girls. <laughs> I'm kind of interested now, is it like linked in any way to World War II? Because I know a lot of kind of cultural shifts happened around that time for that reason. It's like, around uh, women that- shaving. Um, it's around that era, but I'm not 100% certain. I couldn't speak on the connection. Okay, well, let's finish recording this and then dig into it further off the air. <laughs> just for the crack. Yeah, just, uh, you know, we're just Another one, um, just in, in support of the men being more emotional thing, they're far more likely to say I love you before women in a relationship. Um, like, like a hell of a lot more. Um, they say about 97 days, just over three months, it'll take a man in a relationship to say I love you to a woman. Um, and women take about six to nine weeks longer than that before they'll be willing to say it. Nine weeks? Yeah. I can honestly say that's not something I've noticed. But I would hate to be the person who says I love you and then has to wait nine weeks for an answer. If the relationships go the way of mine, they've already broken up with you by that stage. Oh, oh, honey. Could be worse. I'm a man and emotionally resilient, and it hasn't affected my self-esteem at all. Um, lacy clothing used to be very masculine as well. Uh, they used to wear lacy clothing. It was a, a social return of that, though. Little, yeah, kind of a little bit. Well, it, mostly in the LGBTQI plus. Did I miss anybody? A. A LGBTQI plus plus community. QIA um, plus. Yeah, that's that's the lot. I, I think. should know this. <laughs> just being a member of said community yeah. being a member of it twice um, so it was a social symbol demonstrating you were rich uh, men would happily wear lace it was the most expensive thing going and it only stopped really becoming acceptable in the 19th century hmm. uh, this go. next one I love uh, as a straight man I've always thought this a little bit to myself being gay used to mean you were more masculine okay that makes sense to me yeah, I was I was saying there's an old there's a comedy routine I used to I used to know about it where it was a guy saying that like you know it's if you talk to a straight guy it's mm. like you know oh I want to have sex with a woman and I want her to have nice long hair and I want her to smell really nice like flowers mm. and wear all these bright she'd be colors and curvy and, and soft she's so curvy yeah. and lovely and soft and I want her and yeah, the gay yeah. goes like, I want to fuck a bloke yeah exactly yeah. I'm gonna fucking grab a big fat hairy man and I'm gonna dig my I'm not going to keep going <laughs> <laughs> teeth and nails and all but That's in Roman times it was dig that my way teeth and nails into them good save I thought that would be the case yeah. thank you in ancient Rome sexuality was defined not by a preference for one sex or another sex was more about social status it was defined by how you had sex not who you had sex with mm-hmm. they distinguished between being active or passive active meant you the penetrator passive meant you were penetrated whether you were having sex with a man or a woman didn't matter as long as you were the active one if that shocks you 
then be ready for this because men and women are the same. Do you want to elaborate? Yeah. Okay. We all start the exact same way. There's no difference. All embryos develop the makings of both male and female sex organs for the first eight weeks. They are identical in external appearance beyond the several factors nudge the infant towards male or female. But they pretty much start at the exact same. So this feels like a good time to mention that uh, in much the same way as gender is a spectrum, sex is also a spectrum. And I'm not quite sure when this idea that you're male or you're female came about, but it's not actually black and white like that. First of all, because we have intersex people, obviously, but also because Mm -hmm. humans have like secondary and tertiary sex characteristics as well. And like you can have like these proud, strong women who have vaginas and tits and all sorts of things and also massive fucking beards. You get men with boobs all the time. There's a ton of different things. It's not black and white. It's not perfectly straightforward. No, no, definitely not. Uh, I suppose in that case, I'm more so talking about sex than I am about gender, but the point remains yeah. the same. Yeah. And yeah. by sex, they literally mean, does it have a sticky-outy one or an innie one? Or is it something different? Also, Which seems I to be mean, how people talk about it. This is easy for me to say because I'm pansexual. I just don't give a shit what's sticking out or what's sticking in. or You know, everyone has a face. Use your face if you must. Right? It just makes sense to me. Um, I find it's not the most useful thing in putting out fires. Um... <laughs> Use your face for everything. Wait, you use your dick to put out fires? I'm a man. I can do that. Oh, you piss on things. <laughs> I, I forgot that. Yeah, no, folks with penises, they love to piss on things. Too right. Yeah, okay. Uh, men also get eating disorders quite frequently. Um, yep. In fact, the earliest medical description of anis or anorexia was uh, a male. Um, it's not a modern thing either. Lord Byron was anorexic. Um he could not eat more than once a day. He took quantities of vinegar to lessen his appetite and, do- and dosed himself with Epsom salts, magnesia, and strong laxatives. Um, the likes of Dennis Quaid, Billy Bob Thornton, and Ashley Hamilton have had anorexia. Freddie Flintoff, Paul Gascon, and David Coulthard have all had bulimia. And they're not alone. Last year, 320,000 men were admitted to hospitals suffering with bulimia, anorexia, and muscle dysmorphia. Um, that is up 63% in the last five years. But, okay, so this is one of, I guess, the more unfortunate pitfalls, shall we say, of modern masculinity. I feel like that's not addressed enough. And there's so much more stigma for eating disorders if you are male than if you're female. Right? Uh, I don't know. This is the thing, is that, like, I think societally, people hear of a woman getting an eating disorder and they go... Oh, well, that's par for the course, and it fucking shouldn't be. It, no, absolutely it's kind of not. the way I think it's just the way it's talked about. But, like, in the medical community, it's pretty well talked about it as being a, a, a non gender specific thing, having I eating mean, disorders. Good. Thankfully, you I know, have no experience with this. But, uh, yeah. I don't know. I kind of, I've always sort of assumed. Growing up, I had three friends who had eating disorders two young women and one young man. And definitely, mm-hmm. yeah, our, our dude friend got a lot more flack for it. And people seemed to think it was okay to take the piss out of him when he was actually quite ill. Yeah. And um, for some reason, everyone was kind of more delicate with our, with our female friends who were affected by eating disorders. 
I mean, that goes that goes a number of ways. I mean, like people say, even parents are are much, uh, much less, well, sorry, far less strict with with female babies or AFAB babies, I suppose, um, than they are with male babies. People tend to be like that, and society is kind of like that too. It happens with prison sentences, for example, is another one. Yeah, God, um, yeah. Which, yeah, it's its own problem. But I will just go to my final fact because it's not mm-hmm. actually that much of a good one. But uh, <laughs> men can't always cope. Uh, men are up to four times more likely to attempt suicide and succeed. Um, suicide is the biggest killer of men between 25 and 40. That took me by surprise, actually. It's the biggest killer to 25 and 40. Um, young boys have been proven to be more emotionally reactive and expressive than their female counterparts. So the idea of the strong silent type is wildly outdated, like a lot of our views on masculinity. There you go. I, Funnily enough, I actually knew that statistic because a friend of mine bought me a gift of a set of guitar strings. Mm-hmm. And I think, oh, I'm going back years, so please bear with me if I'm wrong. I think it's called One Blue String. But it's okay. it's a pack of guitar strings and one of them is blue. And it's supposed to represent the one in six men who has suffered sexual assault, I believe, or domestic violence. I, I really should have looked this up. I didn't know it was going to come up. But they also have a pack of bass strings, I think, for the one in four men who has attempted suicide. Yeah, sounds a bit right. Or possibly it's violin strings. Maybe cut this. I'm really not convinced of my information. <laughs> it's a nicely charitable thing anyway. It's Yeah, look it up. One blue string. Find out what <laughs> I was wrong about. Um, you had a little point about misframing men, if I recall. Misframing men. So misframing men is actually the title of a book. Uh-huh. Um, it was written by a very prominent gender studies academic named Michael Kimmel about 10 years ago, I think. And so basically, Michael Kimmel has this idea that the reason why we, the Western or white or English speaking or like whatever you want to call this section of humanity we don't really know how to talk about masculinity. And it's because men have, for a hell of a long time, been trying to create counter-feminism. So basically, this this one small subsection of men, this, this little pack of dudes, they saw what the femme people had, and they thought, oh yeah, that's amazing. We want to be like that. But we also want to be super chauvinist and hate on women all the time. Because obviously this this one little pack of dudes, they weren't the ideal man. They weren't the best. Um, and I I think we all know what that is in the present day, right? Like you get your, your Megtow, men going their own way. Um, like incels, obviously, are mm. more and more of a problem nowadays. Your men's rights activists who, as far as I can tell from Twitter, are not actually human rights activists or men's rights activists in any way. They just hate women. That's their whole shtick. And there's all these toxic dudes who are working really hard to be the opposite of feminists and so hard that they wind up backing themselves into these really dodgy, dark fucking corners. And now they're not just like anti-abortion or anti-women's lib or pro-marriage ban or whatever it is. They've suddenly become like pro-rape and pro-child sex abuse. And I don't think anyone winds up in that position as a result of clear thought or positive decision making. No, and I, I, if I may, I've kind of looked into the incel community a little bit. And mm. I've watched a couple of documentaries about MRAs, uh, men's right activists. And from what I can tell, it's there's a huge spectrum. 
Like there's your yeah. there's your Jordan Peterson base misogynist people. And then there's the head cases. And the head cases are the ones you're talking about who are like that. There's Absolutely. other ones there who will say something like, um, they're sick of hearing about feminism in the news because they want men's mental health to be taken more seriously and they think that this, suicide is a bigger issue than but it's a derailment tactic and I think this it's, is the it's fucking mostly kicker for me though. This I think that's the worst part because the thing that they mm. need the people who are advocating for male mental health and the people who are saying, no, like men are fucking beautiful, creative creatures and we love them and they weren't born to choke whores and hang themselves. They're really fucking worthy. Those people are feminists. They, well, I don't know if they'd use those exact words if they were feminists. But, but you yeah, know what? Sure. I'm self-identifying as a feminist and I'm using those words. Now it's true. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you talk for Fair long enough. enough, you can make anything true. <laughs> yes, very true. Yeah. I, I've noticed that just from looking with in, inside the communities a little bit. And then I think what comes after that is is what is the definition of toxic masculinity. It's capitulation through abuse. Mm. It's if you feel isolated and alone and you are unable to face up to your own mental health issues, you start blaming outside um, forces, forces outside of your reach or your interaction. And that's what these people have done with women is they haven't had any interaction with women, so they base their entire self-esteem on a gender and then have decided that every single one of their problems are as a result of being rejected by that gender. Yeah, which is absolutely just, like you said, it's a decision that people, usually men, not necessarily, usually men, are making either on their own or something they're being told by other dodgy men. It never seems to be based on real experience. There is a military recruitment type thing that goes on on the internet, yeah. though, isn't there? It is It is like the guy from the military hanging around outside the mall to see the deadbeat kids and see who looks yeah. damaged enough to go and it, fight it's overseas. It's all very hello, fellow kids. Yeah, and it, it definitely happens. I've seen it on Reddit where there's like some guy posts something saying that he feels really alone and how women won't talk to him and stuff. And I've actually engaged with these people even before mm. and saying like the first step is to recognize that sex is not something you do so to someone or have something done to you. It's something that two people do together. And once you can reconcile that thought with yourself, I mean, your whole perspective changes. And even after saying that to them, they still go off and leave and say, I can't be talking to you guys are all been brainwashed by feminism and stuff like that. It's the yeah. exact same MAGA bullshit. So I like kind of my guilty pleasure Reddit community that I stalk Let's uh-huh. just be honest about the people that we are, you know. Um, I don't do that. Red pill women. Is that women who have taken on the MRA type deal? Yeah. So red pill women, I find really disturbing because there's so there's a handful of them that are like, I want to be a trad wife. I want to serve my man, whatever. But there's so many of them. You'll so often see them going, "Well, my husband says. Well, my father mm. told me." Well, my brother showed me this. And again, it seems to constantly be something that people are told. And it's nearly never based on experience. And if if I can, can I lead you a little bit? Yeah, sure. I feel like now is a great moment to kind of root into the difference between masculinity, toxic masculinity, which... I think we're all aware not all masculinity is toxic. I love my husband. I love Nick Offerman. You know. Which He's a pure positive masculinity guy, isn't he? Oh, 100%. He's kept Most all wholesome of the masculinity. 
most masculine, yeah. most wholesome. Fucking love Nick Offerman. Great dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so do you want to, being our resident man, and arguably, but not definitely, the most masculine person on this podcast, do you want Explain to... Explain the differences? Uh, yeah, do you want to bring us through that a little bit? Um, I can give you a little bit on it, um, which is that there is actually a, a, a project set up by a few academics. Uh, May Allen, Dr. May Allen is one of them. It's called the Good Man Project. Um, and so how they define toxic masculinity is a narrow and repressive description of masculinity, mm-hmm. uh, where strength is everything, emotions are a weakness, sex and brutality are yardsticks by which men are measured, while supposedly feminine traits, which can range from emotional vulnerability to simply not being hypersexual, um, are the means by which your status as a man can be taken away. Um, Bummer. And I think that's actually, I, I feel like that's probably the most succinct way of putting masculine, or toxic masculinity. Yeah. Now, I think anything as a consequence of that can come forth in society, like say bullying between men, yeah. say for like having not lost your virginity by a certain age or having, I don't know, being, being too into your hair products or something like that. It all stems from that. Basically it's, it's mm-hmm. toxic masculinity is essentially a vilification of feminine traits. Uh, so uh, May, Dr. Maeve Allen describes uh, what she thinks the definition of healthy masculinity, which is that, uh, it's a means of embracing femininity and not being ashamed of it. Mm-hmm. And it means open-mindedness and an attempt not to limit oneself based on gender expectations. I like and that. I think that's, yeah, but I don't think, I don't know if I agree with it, actually. I, I don't think that masculinity should be defined as being open-minded to all. I feel like, not to put words in your mouth, but I feel like what you're trying to say is you don't necessarily think that masculinity needs to be defined by its relationship to femininity. And that it can no. exist on its own, right? Yeah, that yeah. is exactly it. And I'd also say that I don't think toxic masculinity defines masculinity either. I think that mm. there are positive aspects of masculinity. And we see it, I mean, to be honest, unfortunately, because we've we've lived in a patriarchy for so long, mm. most of our narratives and storytelling are told from a patriarchal standpoint and from a masculine standpoint. But I feel there are positive aspects to those masculine narratives as well. Like the aspect of the hero, I think is incredibly important. Yeah. There are like, it's... I think there's there's positive masculinity to be seen in the person that wants to step up and stop a mugging. Or, yes, or, that's actually a yeah. really great example. Yeah, if you think so. Yeah. I, I'm speaking out loud here. Feel free to disagree. I think that's one. I also think that um, there's also a certain admirable quality to composure. You know, not that I'm a fan of stoicism or suppressing one's emotions, but deciding that now is not the time to say your piece and to hold it back for another period when it's more appropriate. That element of composure, I think, is a masculine trait, which I think yeah. is quite positive too. You know? Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's all I'd have to say on it. Like, I think there is positive elements of masculinity and there's a hell of a lot of toxic bullshit too. So actually something I've noticed that I just love, I adore it, So as I think you all know by now, I used to do some youth work and I dealt with young people in a professional setting. And I've noticed Mm. that like our young men, our our young men who are, let's just say, like 16 and below at the moment, Mm. are so much more positively masculine than the men who are like my age. I'm 28. And so I'm, I'm very much like entrenched in the millennials. And they're not bad. I'm not here to mm. shit on millennials. I am one. Um, but yeah, I've noticed that Gen Z, not to continue singing Gen Z's praises yet again, 
but they're a little bit better at masculinity. And I feel like we're kind of in a transitional period right now with, I mean, obviously in the past 10, 20 years, we have so much more awareness of like gender issues and gender specific treatment of people. And all of that has just opened up in an amazing way compared to even when you and I were born, Chase. Yeah, that's because they grew up with Marvel films. <laughs> I I don't you you know this. I don't really know what's in the Marvel films. Are they positively masculine? There's there's a, there's a lot there's a lot of I think Captain America is a very positively masculine character. Yeah, dutiful hmm. to the last. Um, I like that. Chaste, respectful, um, punctual, which is a real thing as well. Yep, um, it matters. Iron Man, uh, innovative. Is um, Iron but Man also, not kind of a? Like a bit of a, a playboy. I, I kind of want to say pussy he, hound. He, well, here's the thing is he's, he's, he's a, a redemptive character okay. in that he was a billionaire playboy uh, who sold arms and then he was kidnapped and mm-hmm. tortured and locked in a cave. And he escaped and shut down all weapons manufacturing and then became Iron Man and a hero. And he does have that sort of impulsiveness that we associate with sort of the masculine hero archetype. Yeah. But they show the consequences of that because he tries to sacrifice his life and save the world by flying into a wormhole. And for the entirety of the next film, he's having panic attacks because of it. I mean, spoilers, they show what. On. Well, it, this, this film came out nine years ago. I think we're okay. I haven't um, seen it. <laughs> it's fine. But that's my whole point is it does, I think, those Marvel films in that case did show how this hyper-masculine character that would have been idolized by a lot of men mm. in trying to suppress his fear and his doubts and his um, his worries started to suffer from panic attacks and thought he was having a heart attack at several points in the film. And it shows that, I think, which then, I suppose, in some way, in reconciling that, he is embracing his feminine side and kind of resolving this masculine, faulty hero arc. So... I feel like, though, that is a recurring thing. And, like, even from an evolutionary standpoint, I feel like a lot of the traits that we have, or at least that we are currently, I'm going to go with, defining as masculine, because I guess we just learned that what's masculine changes every hundred years or so. Yeah. A lot of that seems to be based around this core idea that men are selfish because they have to survive. And women are selfless because they have to raise children. There's a bit of that going around, yeah. <laughs> like, a, a lot of things boil down to that. And uh, this seems like a good moment to, I guess, out myself and nail my flag to the mast. Is that the expression? You would hoist your flag up a mast. You wouldn't um, really nail that's it. That's the one I'm going to hoist. <laughs> yeah, that would be a shit flag. You could nail your doctrine to the walls of the church there, Emma Luther Walsh Hackett. I think it's the door of the church, but yeah. Um, oh, so right I... I just don't think we need gender. I just don't think yeah, it's necessary or productive or helpful. You're anti-gender and I'm uncle gender. <laughs> oh my God, we should start like an aunt and uncle folk, agony. Folk group. I yeah. was going to say like a place where we give people life advice, like an agony aunt column. Once we're done with the podcast. But yeah, we'll I, I would agree show. with you. I, you. You think that gender doesn't exist it is a concept and um, i think having spoken to you about it many I, times i, I don't agree with you. think that it doesn't exist like i think it's made up well no i know it's made up but just made. because something is 
a social construct doesn't make it non-existent. Like money is a social mm. construct, but I still have to pay my rent. And gender is a social construct, but people still see me and read me as female and refer to me as she. And I get that. Yeah. Like that's what makes sense to them. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's okay. Like gender is not a bad thing necessarily, but I do see a lot of ways in which it is holding us back and it is breeding more space for toxic masculinity, for toxic femininity, for transphobia, etc. obviously. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think we need it. I think we would probably be better off if everyone was just free to pursue what is masculine in them, pursue what is feminine in them, and just be people and be really chill about it. We we have had this discussion before, and I mm. think what I said that time I still agree with, which is that if you wanted to sell that idea to people, you'd have a really tough time because for them, their identity is the woman mm. taken away from them. That's a huge deal. In fact, um, J.K. Rowling, we've oh, all got God. bad stuff to say about her these days. But remember that the reason she has the views that she does is because when she went to college in the late 80s, 90s, Trans exclusive, exclusive, uh, trans exclusionary feminism was a was the preferred was the school of feminism. thought. Yeah, it was the feminism, and so yeah. there was a huge emphasis placed upon your identity as a woman and how it's important to reclaim that as something apart from the identity that a mm. man bestows upon you. And I understand and that as a response as, yeah. to rape culture and as a response to male violence and etc. 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 I hold J.K. Rowling and her ilk personally responsible for not moving forward and not getting with the modern schools of philosophy. To be fair, most of them did. A lot of them did. A ton of them did. Absolutely. J.K. Rowling just happened to get a Twitter and have have millions of dollars. I have a bookcase here in front of me full of feminist literature from, I want to say, like from the 70s forward. And it is. It's genuinely inspiring to see how much these viewpoints have grown and changed. But that's (laughs) it. Just to circle back to what I was going to say, we're in a transitional period and we've got like a shocking difference in the way masculinity is being expressed by the older crowd compared to the younger crowd. Because now we're talking, and I mean like really like talking loudly and in public and to men, because it's mainstream now, about some of the patriarchal bullshit the masculine culture is still holding on to. Like, we all, we've we all seen the Me Too movement. We know that we're done with locker room talk. We're done with mansplaining. Hmm. Uh, some of us understand manspreading and some of us don't. Um, Actually, quite a lot of people don't understand mansplaining too. And that one drives me insane. I recently saw a tweet which was, try clunkily... Ex- clunkily referring to it as man-explaining and wait for a man to explain to you that it's actually mansplaining. (laughs) That is very good. And it's just, you know what it is? It's that the same type of people who, you know, granted are still proponents of the movement and still go to the marches and are activists and all that, just frustrate me when I'll say, I'll be talking about, say, a raclette. And I'll say, oh, Oh, do you know what a raclette is? And they'll say, no. And I'll go, oh, the raclette is the cheese thing where you burn it. And they're like, stop mansplaining to me. And it's like, I'm not mansplaining. I asked you, you did you know what it means? Know. Yeah. Exactly. And I will do that so often in a conversation. I'm very careful. So, uh, once in a while, 
I won't if and it's something ridiculous like, you know, the transprambulation of pseudocosmic antimatter. This is actually really important to me. So I want to just really quickly spell it out for our listeners. So sure. mansplaining is not just a man explaining something because it's completely fine for men to explain things. And it's often necessary for a man to explain a thing. Mansplaining is when a man either keeps explaining something to a woman like she's stupid, probably because he thinks she is, or keeps explaining something that the other person actually knows about. So there's a great example where uh, this man started trying to talk, I think, again, on Twitter, to a woman was like... I'm just going to say, I feel like I've mansplained mansplaining now, which is how they really, really (laughs) worried. I feel like I'm facing some emails here. I feel like you did. Okay, well, Um, thank you. I appreciate that. Like, we'll let the folks at home decide whether (laughs) to hang you or, you know... I'm going to get Twittered. You're going to get Twittered. Do we have Twitter? Is that something we do? I have, a, I, I have Twitter. Oh, well, you sure glad that I don't. As far as any <laughs> of you know. But yeah, no, there was an example on Twitter where a man tried to explain to a woman what the Good Friday Agreement was. And she stopped him and was like, I've written two books about the Good Friday yes. Agreement. And he was I like, remember okay, seeing this, yeah. okay, but hear me out. Let me just finish. <laughs> and she's like, no, please don't. I'm an academic expert in the field. So, yeah. That's but, you know, a, a lot of this, a lot of these kind of small innocuous things, they kind of slip under the radar when we're all busy handling really difficult subjects like rape and murder and trans rights, you know. In much the same yeah. way, yes, I'm about to do this. Yes, I'm about to do this. In much the same way as Fine Gael rehired the Gulfgate senators on the same day that the Mother and Baby Homes report was released. Go ahead and Google that. I'm going to get back on topic. Wonderful. It was Fina Fall, not Fine Gael. What did I say? You said Fine Gael. I apologise. I was completely wrong. I'm so used to giving out about one. They are currently in coalition, but it was Fianna Fáil that rehired them. Two cheeks and of yes, the same arse. Yes, no, you're absolutely correct. It was Fianna Fáil. I'm so used to <laughs> complaining about Fianna Gael. Um, but There's enough yeah, to be no, complaining it's, about. It's that. It's the tiny, nasty little things that go under the radar. But they do. They come together and they create the skeleton that holds up rape culture. And... Yeah. Yet somehow all these tiny things, all these Lego blocks of toxic masculinity are not that bad. Or they're not bad compared to the much worse things. But it is. It's it's all part of the same structure. I, I think with, with any type of uh, socially progressive movement, there's always going to be micro examples of how it... Mm. Um, manifests itself within day-to-day interactions. All those little micro things all make up what is essentially a patriarchal world. But I, that's why I think that like it's so important to dismantle these tiny things, these yeah. you know mansplaining incidents, these manspreading mm-hmm. incidents, these um, as I said, keeping women involved in a conversation is one that was just such a shock to me of noticing yeah. that people weren't talking also, to them; they were talking eye to me through them. With feminized people. Yeah, I try not to do that because I I feel like the majority of time if I'm in a bar and I do that, it hints that I I, I mean, want don't, to don't do it to strangers, flirt. don't make uncomfortable eye contact with strangers. But when you're in a group setting, just like mm-hmm. as an exercise, I guess in much the same way as check who you're asking about your opinions. Um, if you're in a group setting, 
just internally have a little measure for yourself and see, am I making eye contact with the femaligned people in this group as often as I'm making eye contact with the masculine people in this group? Because there's a weird lack of eye contact in group settings. I mean, I often just don't make eye contact with people unless I have one, ver- something very important to say, mm. or two, I'm interested in flirting with them, which means I have something very important to say. Obviously, yeah. Your flirting is yeah. essential. So, yeah, it's, it's, it, to be honest, I had to get a letter from the guards to prove I was allowed to do it outside of the, the <laughs> lockdown restrictions, which is very handy. It's a public goddamn service. <laughs> <laughs> I had a, a little sort of bit, because you know how much I'm a fan of my, my Carl Jung and my Jungian psychology and philosophy. Oh, God, yeah. Um, yeah, I just thought it was interesting because just being a man, this was a little bit sort of, it hit home to me, which is that in noting a lot of the people I know who, you know, were getting into fights, and men are always considered to be the, the boys will be boys aspect. If we get into fights, we're more violent, we're more competitive, all this sort of stuff. Um, and Carl Jung noted that the power in a man's personality um in the beginning, in the formation of his own self-esteem, is actually derived from his capacity to commit violence. Oh. That's okay. what they think, is they think... Well, it's because you learn about the exertive force that you have, mm-hmm. but not in committing violence, but in learning the dark contours of the inner self, learning about what are your darkest impulses and how to, one, both control them, and two to exercise, not only restraint in that regard, which I think is a positively masculine thing too. Is this unnecessarily gendered, though? I feel like, well, this is the thing, is it, it might be, but Carl Jung was a man and he is writing about masculine psychology. So he's writing from his okay. own experiences, I think is the only so way I justify. So it's one of those I moments justify. of, this may apply to femme people, but that's not what we're talking about right now. In this specific subject, no. Okay, I fair enough. So. Please go on. Um, so he says, in, int- uh, in integrating those dangerous parts, those dark contours of the inner self, so that they won't erupt and take us over, um, which is not that dissimilar to a guy called Raymond Chandler, who wrote a description of what is the, the sort of um, typical masculine hero, as we were discussing, mm-hmm. um, which was that down these mean streets, a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. He is the hero. He is everything. He must be a complete man and a common man and yet an unusual man. He must be to use a rather he must be to use a rather weathered phrase, a man of honor by instinct, by inevitability. Without thought of it and certainly without saying it, he must be the best man in his world and a good enough man for any world. He will take no man's money dishonestly and no man's insolence without a due and dispassionate revenge. He is a lonely man and his pride is that you will treat him as a proud man or be very sorry you ever saw him. The story is this man's adventure in search of a hidden truth, and it would be no adventure if it did not happen to a man fit for adventure. If there were enough like him, the world would be a very safe place to live in, without becoming too dull to be worth living in. Let me just... I didn't write that, so no, I don't I know, know if it's worth a clap. I'm not necessarily clapping for you. Um... <laughs> I mean, that's that's great, but is it not just a ton of words for be strong and not a dick? I mean, I think that is an important one because this, that in a little sort of poetic passage kind mm-hmm. of sums up a lot of what men would, without words, describe as what their ideal self is. Yeah. They strive to be this person who is unusual that. That and ready sense. for adventure and wants to be dispassionate. Um, and yet at the same time, it's also... It is also non-toxic. I don't think yeah. it is anyway. I mean, it, sound, it sounds good to me. And Lord knows I'm fucking critical. 
Well, this is why it comes back to the Jungian thing, which is that there's a certain element in being aware of the fact, say, when you're in a situation where you're talking to women, that you are bigger. You are likely stronger. Mm. Now, granted, I know plenty of women who could kick my ass in a fight. But at the same time, like taking advantage of the fact that you have that standing to do better, to Mm. use it for certain elements of good, like speaking out if you see someone behaving like a dick at a bar or pushing someone aside if they're getting a bit too rough or whatever. Like there's... There's an element in learning that responsibility within yourself that comes with how you become an actualized, positive, masculine person. But that's it. And like much and all is I am, I suppose, what some people would describe as a gender abolitionist, though I'm not sure I'd... Gender demolitionist? (laughs) In that you're smashing the patriarchy. It's not going to smash itself, babe. Um, You're right. But yeah, no, like, I'm not saying let's throw the baby out with the bathwater because I just, I just love men. We're good crack. Like, I'm sorry, but the long and the short of it is, yeah, I fucking love men. And there's something great about being with, like, these big, strong dudes who you trust to be protective and to be respectful. And there's something about dads, you know? Like, I feel like when you meet a man... Most of the time, I can kind of pick out the dads in the crowd because they've just got like this aura of wisdom, just like a general protective energy about them. And I love all that shit. Like I eat it up. Okay, that's that's a very lovely sentiment on behalf of men. Thank you for those sentiments. You're very welcome. I just want to you've said the word stoicism. Maybe. Oh, yes, of course. Six times. In this podcast, and I, I kind of stifling laughs every time you say it because, in my research, I came across like a list of masculine traits, and mm-hmm. one of them just read. They just named it as nothingness, which I I like at the time I laughed out loud because men are nothing, just nothing, <laughs> but I think. In my interpretation, I think the word that the author was probably grasping for was stoicism. And the very common expectation of stoicism, I think, is where we start to careen into the significant issues around male mental health. Now, there's definitely space for stoicism in positive masculinity. But I guess this is just... Forward from, I love men. I just, I love yous. If you're listening and you're a man, I just think you're delightful. I want you to love your body, regardless of what it looks like. All that good shit. And I just want to take a moment to be like, you need to talk about the shit that's going on with you, you know? We need to normalize men hugging and kissing their friends as soon as they're vaccinated and can safely do so. We need to normalize emotional vulnerability as a masculine trait and we we the people who are alive now need to do the work on bringing that to the front because i know we mightn't all fucking love being emotionally vulnerable and it can be really uncomfortable and we mightn't all love being called out on our bullshit but all of those things are so good for you and they are going to I believe, dramatically reduce the instance of suicide amongst masculine people and men. I would highly agree with you. Be a man, by which I mean have a snuggle, 
have a cry, talk about your feelings. Check your balls for lumps. Agreed. You know, other good shit. Everyone's fucking toxically masculine. It's 2021. Get on board, dude. We hate men now. Ah. (laughs) Sorry, I'd forgotten about that. Let me do some sort of monologue to sort of prove that I feel the same way. Would that be okay? Is that actually the theme of your of your monologue? Is it you hating men? Because no, if it's far so, more interesting, actually. tell it. And if not, tell it anyway, because I need to know now. I will do. Masculinity is actually the topic I've dreaded discussing most in this podcast for quite some time for one very simple reason. I am a man. In being raised a man in all-male schools and playing sports with men, I've come to develop a lot of the toxic traits that I abhor within society. Discussing this very topic has and was always going to bring up flaws in my personality that are not only difficult to confront, but often difficult to even fathom. One thing I do know, though. Since discovering feminism in my late teens, I've come to realise one very important thing. The men who leak and share nudes with other men on WhatsApp groups, the men who never listen after the first no, the men who get 12 of their friends to follow their new girlfriend on social media, the men who look to me for approval after a woman has contributed to a conversation, and the men who think grabbing someone is a form of flirtation, are all the exact same men who used to wait for me beyond the school grounds. They used to wait for me while I sat crying in the toilets, knowing that if I didn't get it all out there, it'd be all the worse for me when I met them. They're the same men who look down on the homeless, the impoverished, the marginalised and the differently abled. They're the same men who make the world a harsher place to live in, and they're the same men who storm government buildings in the name of entitlement and privilege. But I digress. When I was 14 years old, my economics class under the tutelage of Mr McMurrow was attacked by an unknown terrorist group. Just as we were discussing the law of diminishing marginal utility and its effects on Keynesian market structures, three windows smashed simultaneously and sent a deafening shock across the classroom. Three grenade-shaped objects appeared on the ground at our feet as we all scrambled to help each other out of our desks. As the metal objects hissed and burst open on the floor, a cloud of black smoke began to envelop the room. In the back rows, two of the boys stood punching the wall, while obviously holding back tears. As the smoke spread to the next rows, another took out his phone and started looking at violent pornography, and two more started arm wrestling. (laughs) Quick, shouted Mr. McMurrow. Man up, boys! Three of the boys immediately grabbed their nearest schoolmates and began hoisting them up on their shoulders. Their newly found elevation granted the boys on top a welcome relief from the cloud of black smoke, but the ones at the bottom were now carrying too much weight, and had crouched down further into the fumes, causing them to violently convulse and start calling each other fucking sluts. (laughs) fearing what could soon become his fate my friend harry grabbed my hand and rushed me towards the classroom door mr mcmurrow was trying desperately to restore some order to the classroom but had now started inhaling the smoke and complaining about his wife's recent weight gain as me and harry made it through the door we managed to get the two of the front rows out we shut the door and as the smoke finally seemed to clear we saw through the window that all of our classmates had now passed on leaving nothing but piles of dust in their place Fleeing further down the hallway, myself, Harry, and our four other classmates found the room of Mr. Doyle, the English teacher. Quick, boys, into my man cave, he shouted. (laughs) Two of the rescue group ran inside, but Harry seemed to know something was fishy about the whole situation. Once the two were inside, the same black smoke seemed to emanate from within the man cave, and Mr. Doyle started calling me and Harry gay for holding hands. We ran in the opposite direction, down the stairs and towards the front doors of the building, Every classroom we passed displaying the same signs of the attack. Men fighting boys, boys fighting men, some men appearing to mime a game of rugby and others bashing their heads against the walls in what appeared to be some sort of competition to prove which man had a higher pain tolerance. 
As we arrived at the front doors, Miss Maloney ran out of her office. Quickly, boys, put these on. And she handed us each a bright pink and sparkly gas mask. The two other boys in me and Harry's company, Owen and Darren, were the first to voice their dismay. Miss, this is a girl's mask. We want boys' masks. No, we want men's masks. (laughs) Shut the fuck up and put them on, screamed Miss Maloney, but it was too late. Owen and Darren had inhaled too much smoke on the way down and were beginning to show the same signs of aggression we had seen upstairs. Miss, you just want me to wear these because you fancy me, said Darren, squaring his shoulders and puffing out his chest. She wouldn't shag you if you were the last boy in school, shouted Owen, prompting an exchange of blows that might very well have been years in the making. Harry and I quickly clasped on our gas masks and Miss Maloney led us through the front doors. What we saw outside is something that to this day still makes my stomach churn. It was our principal and vice principal, standing outside throwing these grenades through the windows. It was our PE instructors, our sports coaches, and even our music teachers, all holding bags with TM written on them, reaching in, pulling out grenades, and lobbing them at the school. There were some other adults with them, though I don't think I recognised anyone in particular. Upon seeing us escaping in our pink masks, they began hurling more grenades at us, throwing out homophobic slurs and calling us girls' names as we tried to flee. As we managed to gain a bit of distance, a large horn blew from the crowd and everyone stopped and went silent. Okay, boys, now's your chance. You have to run, cried Miss Maloney. I took Harry's hand, who had suddenly frozen on the spot, and I tried to drag him further forward. At this point, the crowd of role models had parted like the Red Sea. In the centre of this parting, a large woman had taken centre stage and was being cheered on by the rest of the crowd. Oh my God, said Harry. It doesn't matter, Harry. Let's go, I screamed. No, said Harry. That's... That's me ma. (laughs) Harry's mother had drawn another grenade and was clearly throwing to try and dislodge Harry's mask. No, I screamed as I grabbed Harry's hand, but at the time of her heroics had long passed. Harry's mask had been knocked off his face and I could see his eyes turning black with anger. I turned and ran. I ran as fast as I could for as long as I could... I looked back to see if anyone could help me, but all I could see was the angry mob rushing towards me, throwing more grenades. I finally reached a wall and I tried desperately to climb it, but I couldn't get the purchase needed to hoist myself up. With the mob drawing nearer and the smoke starting to surround me, I settled in for what I truly believed was going to be my end. Then, all of a sudden, as if by some deus ex machina mechanism for ending what has been the worst allegory I've ever come up with, (laughs) Miss Baloney's hand appeared to pull me up over the wall to safety. We never leave a man behind, she said, as the crowd started to envelop her. Anyway, just to put a pin in it, I woke up surrounded by the smoke of my burning oven pizza, having fallen asleep on my kitchen floor while high and listening to the Joe Rogan podcast at age 29. (laughs) But I still think it's quite relevant. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you next week. Joe Rogan. Chase, (laughs) I think you're a good man. Thank you, Emma. I think you would have been a good man. I, I still have time. (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> alright I'll see you, later, see you next guys. week be safe <laughs>